Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're turning there, this is a month, uh, as I explained earlier, where we're just going to address some one-offs, some things that I think would be helpful for us as a church in getting ready for the new year and reorienting our lives toward gospel faithfulness here in 2018. I want us to look at an extended section of Scripture this morning that is a little longer than I'm frankly comfortable dealing with, but I think it functions together as such a tight unit It'll serve us to look at the whole. Let me read for you just to set in your mind the verses that we'll be studying. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, down through chapter 2, verse 10. Peter writes, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another, From the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. And the grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now... You have received mercy. As all of you know, Kim and I are parents to three sons. Uh, Mark just graduated high school early and is in college, so that qualifies us as parents of three collegians. And when the boys were young, I would have the opportunity to take them to school. It was about a half an hour drive. They went to school where I was serving at a church, and we would... um, 
uh, have so many priceless talks on the way to, to uh, uh, school. I, I, my, my fondest memories, I think, of, of those younger days with my sons were those times in the car where there was nothing but Los Angeles traffic and the ability to talk to each other. Well, I found myself doing something early on when they were, Luke was in kindergarten and the, the boys began to grow up that stuck and it still sticks to this day. In fact, it just came up uh, last Sunday when, when John went back to Louisville to school. And that is, as the boys would leave the car, I would say something every day. In fact, they began to say it to me as I started to say it. It was, it was the way we kind of said goodbye. As they would stop, I would stop to pull the car over to let them out. They would, they would hear their dad say, if not once a thousand times, Remember who you belong to. Now that came from what my dad used to say, but with an augmentation. My dad used to always say, boy, remember you're a Holland. And what he meant by that was whatever you do, Ricky, responds and reflects on me. That had a massive and profound impact on me. And I remember doing things and getting in trouble for things, just for argument's sake, And knowing that there would be a call to my father and the terror and horror of knowing the conversation that was going to happen between us. Do do you know that you share my last name? Well, that's what we were talking about when I would say, remember who you belong to. but, But I wanted it to mean more than that. Remember who you belong to is another way of saying, have you been bought by the great and infinite price of the death of God's son? And if so... Act like it. The section I just read to you that we'll be looking at this morning is is Peter saying, remember who you belong to. Do you remember who you belong to? I want to hear Peter say to us this morning, remember who it is you belong to so that you know who to remember. This is a recalibration. Now, I am not an auto mechanic I wish I was. There was an opportunity in high school I could have taken auto shop and I have regretted my whole life not taking that class. I know a lot about cars. I know where you put the gas. I know what oil looks like when it leaks out of the engine. And I know the mechanic to call. That's the extent of my knowledge of cars. I wish I knew how how to fix things on my car. I would have saved a lot of money Cars have so many parts that, this is the word they use, need to be calibrated, need to be recalibrated. Not long ago, we, we got some uh, uh, tires on one of my boy's car, and it, it took a little extra time for calibration and balancing, and, and I was explaining to my son, if you put new tires on a car and you don't calibrate or balance them, they'll wear in wrong, and it'll, it'll shorten the life of the tire. What Peter's doing this morning is he's offering us an opportunity spiritually to recalibrate, to retune. You know, Prowse was playing his guitar this morning so excellently for us. I love a guitar. Guitars don't stay in tune for a matter of hours, much less days. I can guarantee you whether it was Prowse or any of the other stringed instrumentalist today, when you, the first thing you do when you get into a building is you tune that instrument. 
That's a calibration. Our lives are a lot like that. Without constant attention and constant retuning and recalibration, then we will be like a, a violin or a cello or a bass or a guitar that, that's out of tune. That's what this passage is about this morning. Peter begins the letter and he says in verse one of chapter one, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and specifically writing those who are elect or chosen. If you were to go from there and glance down through the book, you would find a pronounced accent. The accent is on the second person. It's on the word you. 122, since you have purified your soul. Also, you love one another, implied. Verse 23, you have been born again. Verse 25, this word is preached to you. Chapter two, verse two. Like newborn babies, you long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow. Verse three of chapter two, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Verse four, and you coming to him. Verse five, you are being built up. Do you see the emphasis? You, 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 you. It's obvious that Peter's encouraging these bewildered, persecuted, running for their lives believers to remember who they belong to, to calibrate their lives. Now, this is what I find so amazing about 1 Peter. Peter is writing to a group of Christians who were literally fearing for their lives that at any moment a knock could come on their door during their worship. They could be arrested and undergo capital punishment, being killed for believing the gospel. And yet, in this epistle, he says very little about that threat and a whole lot about them living a calibrated, in-tune life for the glory of God. It's almost as if he's saying, if you take care of your holiness, if you implement godliness, if you pursue Christ, he will, by nature of that relationship, automatically give you the defense, the comfort, the care, and the peace, and ultimately even the courage to face persecution. So we're going to back up high altitude today and look at this passage and find together four indicators of a calibrated Christian identity. This is a checklist. This is a reflection. This is a, a, a resolution passage, a reorientation passage. Four indicators of a calibrated Christian identity. The first is in verse 22 of chapter one. We love God's people. We love God's people. He says, verse 22, since in obedience you have to the truth purified your souls from a sincere, that word sincere is a Greek word that means unhypocritical, genuine, authentic. Because you have pursued obedience to the truth, because you're pursuing sanctification and holiness, then love the brethren. You have an unhypocritical love of the brethren, then he says, take that love and amplify it fervently, intensely, love one another. (laughs) And then he drills down from the heart. This word translated fervently is the same word used in Luke twenty two forty four 44 of the intensity of Jesus' prayer in the garden. 
where he sweat great drops of blood. That's the intensity of this love. Peter had obviously learned the lesson of the Last Supper. Remember what Jesus repeatedly taught between John 13 and John 16? A new commandment, he says in John 13, 34, I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. And then he says, by this all men will know that you love me when you love one another. The greatest evangelistic platform the church can have to the world is not first loving them. It's having love for each other. Can I say it another way? It's an unbeliever coming in among us and going, wow, do I feel left out. Oh, they like me, they're kind, they're hospitable, but their love for each other is something that transcends human relationships. And he says, love each other from the heart. I think I know what he's addressing there. Oh, we can come on Sunday mornings, hey, brother, happy that we don't have to extend that brotherhood beyond the morning. He says from the heart, meaning it's sincere, unhypocritical. It extends from Monday morning through Saturday night. By the way, did you see the implication that if our souls are being purified, that results in obedience to Christ by loving one another? If you want proof, Notice how challenging it is to love certain people in the church who are unlovely. And before you go too far down that line of thinking, just imagine that for some people, you are that person who's hard to love. Ever thought about that? Because we are. Church is not intended by God to be an activity center for our families, a place where we hear good music alone. It's, it's a community of relationships where we love the easy to love people and for God's glory, their good and our growth, we love the unlovely. And I don't mean just the obnoxious. I mean, we, we naturally love people who are outside of our our social group, outside of our comfort zone. Whether it's a racial barrier, whether it's a socioeconomic barrier. When we see each other in the body of Christ, we see brothers and sisters who not only are called by God to sanctify us by the relationship, but also we are called by love in our heart to give preference and honor and aid and sustenance and care for them. Boy, a calibrated life is marked by love of the brethren. I, um, I have a network of pastors who I regularly interact with. Some I have a monthly phone call with. Some I have uh, bi-monthly and some I meet with once a year. And when you're sharing pastoral stories kind of around the pastor's campfire. There's a common theme, looking back over the year, I'm thinking of this group I get with in April. The common theme is so-and-so or this group of people, you know, uh, left our church because they, it's always this, they couldn't resolve the conflict that they had with someone in the church. There are good reasons to leave churches. 
There are right reasons to leave churches that aren't, aren't even, don't even have to do with anything wrong with the church. But leaving a fellowship without resolving conflict in a way that glorifies God and proves sanctifying grace between the parties who have things between them, that places an expectation on the church that can only be answered in heaven. If we can ever find a church where all relationships are pure and unstained, I would love to meet you there. It's called glory. It's heaven. I think that's at the heart of love one another fervently, intensely, from the heart, sincerely, without hypocrisy. And know this, this is another whole sermon, but know this, all Christian love involves sacrifice. It involves giving up part of your own heart for the good of those that you love. A second indicator of a calibrated Christian identity, and again, any one of these could stand on their own, we long for God's word. You would have to imagine that Peter would include this. We long for God's word. At the heart of this section is the power and effects of God's written revelation, verse 23. For, and when you see for, that's causation, the causation of Christian fellowship and love he's just described. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is going away, perishes, but is imperishable, it's eternal. Then he tells us what the illustration is illustrating. That is the living and enduring word of God. The imagery here is remarkable. It's that of planting and sowing. He's gonna expand on that in a moment. Specifically, grass and flowers. These are in constant need of planting and pruning and replanting and attention. That's contrasted with the word of God, which is eternal. It doesn't need attention for its own self-sustenance. Now, one of the most intriguing studies you can do in Peter's writing, all the gospel writers, all the New Testament writers, but specifically Peter, is his word of the, his use rather of the word, word. It's the word logos. You've heard that word many times. But it doesn't always mean the written revelation of God. The word, word often means the gospel. And sometimes Peter uses the word, word as the written revelation of God and also a synonym for the truth of the gospel. I think he's doing a double entendre here. I think he's using both here. It's scripture and it's the gospel. It's the revelation, the speaking of God. He illustrates that from Isaiah in verse 24. All flesh is like grass. He talks about us. We're like grass. On all its glory, like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls off. We are temporal. Speaking with someone this morning, I said, I just can't get my hands warm. And they said, well, you just had a birthday and you're getting older and it's gonna get worse. I was so encouraged. Peter reaches back to Isaiah 40, verses six and following for this illustration. Nothing bad in flowers, nothing wrong with grass, just the point that they're temporary. 
And that's compared and contrasted with God's word, which is not temporary. Isn't it amazing that you and I have come together to study a document that is thousands of years old and still relevant and still practical? That's what verse 25 says. The word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. There, I think it's the written word of God which culminates in the gospel, which is the word of God, which was preached to you. Now, we've talked about this before. The chapter divisions in your Bible are not inspired. And this is a chapter vision, division that's helpful for us to find our way around, but not really legitimate in terms of breaking up the argument. Therefore, goes right on the, on the heels of verse 25. Therefore, because of the new life that believers enjoy in the gospel and by the word, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter mentions five sins in really quick succession. Now, remember the context. These are the things that threaten our love for others and relationships within the body. Every one of these sins are specifically applied in relationships, committed in relationships, and they are certainly those that we should repent of and avoid in the body of Christ with each other. Malice, that's just enmity, being mean and having enemies within the body. Deceit, deceit means lying and overstating and understating hypocrisy acting like someone's in a certain relationship with you in their face before their face and then not having that behind their back envy wanting what others have or who they are slander that's just speaking badly about people instead of building them up how do you fix that and by the way, those five sins are, are in seed form and in bloom form in all of our lives. What's the solution? Verse two, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. I love babies. Loved it when my boys were babies. Ever tried to hold a baby and enjoy a baby's presence when the baby's hungry? That is not pleasant. They, they have one thing on their mind, food, and they will do anything to let you know that. Squirm, wiggle, scream, cry. It doesn't matter where they are. They have no social awareness. Peter understands that. He says, when you see a baby who's longing for milk, that's the way you and I are supposed to long for the pure milk of the word. So that, in the Greek, it's, it's a causal, henna, because of that, you may grow in respect to salvation. How do you grow? How do you recalibrate? How do you retune? You long for the pure milk of the word because what will you find in it? What will you taste when you drink from the pure milk of the word? Verse three, you'll taste of the kindness of the Lord. 
One of my favorite parenting passages is not a parenting passage at all. It's, it's really a paradigmatic, it's an exemplar, exemplar passage. And in Romans 2, 4, he's speaking to the Jews, Paul is, and he says, don't you remember, don't you realize that the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance? We look at that as a parent and we say, remember, you can't bad attitude anyone into a good attitude, right? You don't grab your son or daughter by the collar, bring them close to your face and say, you will be joyful. That's encouraging. Can't wait, dad. Let me go and let me just go be happy. When you taste the kindness of the Lord that leads us to want to repent, Isn't he good and isn't he kind? To know proper, what we call theology proper, adequate, the adequate view of God that's biblical is to realize that the great God and judge of the universe has condescended and in mercy been kind to us. It only makes an impact of his, regarding his kindness, if we understand his holiness, his wrath, his disposition and anger towards sin. And now we see in gospel truth and in giving us the word of God, he has demonstrated kindness. That's how you grow in reference to or in respect to salvation. We feed on the word like a newborn baby. Newborn babies don't care who hears them cry. They don't care what gets in their way. They want to be fed. They're hungry and nothing will satisfy them except that milk. Do you have a pronounced hunger for God's word? Yes, this is the read the Bible more sermon. You caught me. Yesterday, I was hungry. And I knew I was hungry because my stomach started growling. And I got a little bit lightheaded and I wanted to eat. Do you ever feel spiritual hunger pains? I'm not being trite. Does your soul ache? And growl when it's deprived of spiritual food. When you go a while without hunger, without 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 eating, when you're when you're on a fast, and your stomach starts growling, and it reminds you of the Lord and 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 why you're doing this, or or you've gone long, you skipped lunch because of work. When when you're hungry, it reminds you that you miss food. You know, I just got to ask you. Is there a reflex in your soul and in your heart that when you go long periods of time, hours, days, a week, more, month, does your soul growl like a stomach does when it misses food? Are you aware when your soul is hungry Listen, it's hungry daily. It's hungry hourly. Are you listening to it growl? 
Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love the connection between feeding and tasting. Taste and see the kindness of the Lord. You know what happens when you go to Costco on Saturday, right? (laughs) You don't have to eat lunch or or buy lunch if you go to Costco on Saturday. Because at the end of every aisle, there are samples, right? Why are they putting those samples on the corner of every aisle? Because they're convinced that if you taste what they're selling, that you will buy it. Can I confess to you that's happened to me more times than I want to admit? It tastes good. I want that. Peter is saying, this is such a sweet invitation. If you taste the kindness, the goodness of the Lord in the word, that taste makes you want more. Have you developed the daily habit of Bible intake? It's amazing that it's only been in the last 200 years or so that we could do this by ourselves. You, you have a copy of God's word. Can I freak you out a little bit? You have more of God's word in your possession than any writer of scripture ever had in his. And if they had that, they would be carrying around handfuls of scrolls. <laughs> you have a book and it's all there. It's amazing. I have never counseled anyone who is in pursuit of, in the practice of, a serious sin, who at the same time said, you know what? I know I'm struggling with being faithful to my friendships, being faithful to my husband or my wife, or looking at pornography, or stealing at work, or being lazy. I've never had someone tell me that who also said, and I am having the most incredible quiet times in my life. Those don't go hand in glove. We long for God's word. Number three, we worship God's son. This is really the the central accent of the passage. We worship God's son and coming to him. We said this earlier in our singing. That's impossible if Jesus is dead. Peter is affirming the resurrection by saying we come to him. That can't happen if you're going to a grave. How do we know that's what he's talking about? Look at the next phrase. As to a living stone. You've all seen bricks. Ever heard a brick sing? Ever had a conversation with a brick? No, these are, this is a stone that's alive. And then he throws in, it's rejected by men. Speaking obviously of the execution and crucifixion of the Lord. Peter accents this in Acts 2. But he's choice and precious in the sight of God. He'll explain this contrast in verse 7, by the way. And then he extends the illustration. You also, as living stones, we are living stones like the living stone of Jesus, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. He's expanding illustration upon illustrating illustration. Stones that are alive, bricks that are alive into a, a, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God 
through Jesus Christ. In other words, the temple has now been fulfilled and obliterated at the same time in the sacrifice of Christ. There are no more needs for individual sacrifices. He has made it, Hebrews 9, once for all. This is an incredible affirmation of one of the great Protestant doctrines of the priesthood of all believers. We don't go to the priest, we are priests. The priest is someone who, who stands bringing God to man and men to God. That is who we've been called to be, what we've been called to do as evangelists. For this, verse six is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, the beginning stone of any building, and he who believes in him will not be shamed or put to shame or disappointed. Now, verse seven is one of my, I'm not sure, I think it's my favorite verse in the Greek New Testament. And I think the translation that actually gets it best is our old friend, the King James Version. The New American Standard says in verse seven, this precious value then is for you who believe. I love the King James translation of this. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. If you believe, the most precious part of our faith is the living, resurrected, real person, Jesus Christ. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever, according to this passage, is whether Jesus is precious or a stone, an idea just to be cast aside, pushed out of the mind. Then at the end of verse 7, he addresses the unbeliever, but for those who disbelieve, this stone which the builders rejected, that became the very cornerstone, the one that you refuse to put your life build your life in reference to, whether you realize it or not, that's the cornerstone of all eternity that God is building. Stone of stumbling, verse eight, and a rock of offense. Does that not describe those who are against the gospel? They're offended, they, they trip over him. Why? This is such an incredible insight. And I wanna confess to you before we just go through this quickly that Verse eight is one of the most challenging verses in the entire New Testament. There are those who go to this verse for the classic doctrine of reprobation or double predestination. What does this mean? The, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this, the New American Standard says doom, really to this disobedience, they were also appointed or preordained or predestined. We have to be very careful here. Any discussion of reprobation or double predestination ends up in this verse. Now, the first quotation is from Isaiah 28, 16, where God promises that he will reject the rebellious leaders in Jerusalem and establish a better, a more sure, literally, foundation 
a cornerstone chosen and precious to him, which was beyond their comprehension. You can notice in verse seven that faith is defined as believing in him. At issue in verses six and seven is honor and shame. The ESV and the New American Standard need to be combined here. Disappointed because of shame is a better way to do that. Peter then returns to Isaiah, this time chapter 8, verse 14. It says, this stone is in the way. It's inconvenient. It's obtrusive. It causes frustration. It causes disdain, even anger. They reject Christ by disobeying the word. This is another one of those places where I think the word can function in Peter's argument as the gospel itself and as the written word of God without any contradiction. The gospel message is determinative for eternity and the life of every person. And the centerpiece of the gospel is not a plan, it's a person, it's Jesus. His point is what are you going to do with the second person of the Trinity? With the incarnate God, with Jesus Christ, that's the, the, the critical question he wants answered. R. McClurkin wrote, If heaven is by grace alone, then hell is by works alone. And the Christ rejecter will have to work his way past every obstacle the love of God can put before him on his downward path toward hell or perdition. That's a great insight. He goes on, Christ is the great unavoidable. If we do not meet him in the way by his grace, he waits at the end of the journey, not then as the stone in the path, but as the high barrier rock around which there is no escape. In 1902, F.W. Grant wrote this, the ungodly are not appointed to be ungodly, but being ungodly, God appointed, but being ungodly, God appointed that this should be the fullest manifest in their rejection of Christ. Very quick, important note here. Peter does not teach that anyone who is at one point in time disobedient is forever excluded from the hope of salvation. That's not anywhere in this passage. Actually, he teaches just the opposite. He writes to encourage readers to live in such a way that they will persuade unbelievers to come to Christ. If he were teaching double predestination here, the rest of this passage would make no sense. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they can observe them and glorify God through your good behavior. Chapter three, verse one, wives be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by behavior of their wives. Peter does not have a cold, hyper-Calvinistic, double predestination, reprobation theology in mind here. He's saying that there is an inextricable link between being disobedient to the word and God turning one over to that disobedience without his grace. Please don't misunderstand. Heaven and hell rest on whether one receives the mercy and forgiveness offered in Christ. The Bible teaches the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation 
parallel to the absolute unquestioned responsibility of every man to respond to the offer of the gospel. Mr. Spurgeon can help us here. He says, the system of truth is not one straight line, but two. No man will ever get a right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at two lines at one time. Think about this. Spurgeon goes on. I am taught in one book to believe that what I sow, I shall reap. I'm taught in another place that it is not of him who wills, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. I see in one place God presiding over all providence, yet I see and I cannot help but seeing that man acts as he pleases in another place and that God has left his actions to his own will in a great measure. Now, if I were to declare that a man was so free to act and that there was no presence of God over his actions, I should be driven very near to atheism. And if on the other hand, I declare that God is so over, overruling of all things, as that man is not free enough to be responsible, then I am driven at once into antinomianism or fatalism. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see, but they are believed in fact, they are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It's just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then, Spurgeon says, I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place in Scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that true truths can never, con these two truths can ever contradict each other. And then he closes by saying this. These two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. But one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind shall pursue them farthest but will never discover that they converge. But they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. That's really helpful to me. God's absolutely sovereign. Man has absolute responsibility if you could figure that out, would you come and tell me? We will write a book together and we will make so much money to settle this debate forever. We worship God's son. He is the cornerstone. Lastly, number four, in calibrating our life, we fulfill God's mission. We fulfill God's mission. Verses nine and 10. You are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. These are all descriptors of Israel. Is this replacement theology? No, I think not. What he's saying is the very purpose for which God called Israel to himself was to be a light to the world. That's why I'm calling you. There's an undeniable contrast here between those who have been chosen from verse nine and those who are disobedient to the word in verse eight. Those who are obedient, Peter is intending to conf 
comfort and, and to encourage and to build up and to calibrate. I love these phrases. Isaiah 43, you're a chosen race. He calls us a race. Now, are we the same race genetically? What do we sing? What do we teach the children to sing? Red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in his sight. A royal priesthood obliterating the Jewish priesthood so that you and I represent God to men and men to God in prayer. There's access, there's responsibility and privilege. A holy nation. Exodus 24 says Israel was set aside as a holy nation before the Lord. And the context here is moral holiness. A people for God's own possession. It's a direct fulfillment of Hosea 2.23, by the way. Why? This all builds in the so what. And the so what is right here. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Excellencies are attributes. Arate, the virtues of God. You know what real evangelism is? It's telling people what's excellent and great about our God, which is impossible to do without telling them the gospel. Is there anything greater about our God than that he condescended in human flesh? That he crucified his beloved son for the sins of those who believe? In other words, the subject of our evangelism is God himself. He's made us a holy people to proclaim, to explain, to share, to preach the things that are excellent about our God. Now, can I draw a circle for you? You cannot proclaim that which is excellent about God unless you know that which is excellent about God, which is only contained where? In his word. Evangelism is not a program. It's a bragging session about our God. It's telling people how great our God is. Verse 10, you were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. Can you just pause? I wish we could spend another hour on that phrase. You are now the people of God. Can you imagine introducing, introducing yourself somewhere at school or at work tomorrow? Hi, uh, I'm so-and-so. They, they introduce themselves. He goes, hi, I'm one of the people of God. They will look at you like you are a stranger, an alien, which is exactly what Peter described you as in chapter one. We were the people who once had not received mercy, but now we've received mercy. Remember, mercy. People just think grace and mercy are tied together. They're the opposite sides of the same coin. Mercy, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. It's unkind, unbelievable kindness. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, which is wrath and judgment. It's amazing to be someone who would share with others, I, 
I've been given mercy. I have been forgiven a debt I could never pay. I'm not going to hell. Peter intends us to be freed from attachment to this world, earthly hindrances. He longs for us to aspire to recalibration on a moment-by-moment basis where we're looking at our life in, from these four perspectives, attempting to grow. Which is why it culminates, and we're not going to go here today in verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers, as oddballs on this planet, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. We love God's people. That's intentional, sacrificial involvement with others' lives in the body of Christ. We long for God's word. That's intentional, sustained intake of God's book, the Bible. We worship God's son. That's intentional, individual and corporate admiration of Jesus who is alive. We fulfill God's mission. Intentional, specific ministry of evangelism and edification where we're telling people what's excellent about our God. It feels like Peter has read my diary. These are four specific areas that I see desired need for growth. And we're to do this together. So a recalibration comes with observation of the need and then application of these truths. If you love Jesus... If you know him as Lord and Savior, this is what we want to do. But if Christ is not the object of your affections, if he's not been the Lord of your life and saved you from your sin, this is the the right day and the perfect place for you to be. The people around you in our prayer room in a moment will be there. uh, We'd love to talk to you. I'd love to chat with you. This This is a day where the doors of God's mercy I love what Jonathan Edwards says, have been flung open and he stands bidding you come. It's a day you can run to Christ. Run to salvation. Run to forgiveness. What kind of fool would say no to the forgiveness of sins? What kind of fool would say no to the hope of heaven? What kind of fool would say no to meaning in life? Don't be foolish. This is a good day to recalibrate your life for the first time.